I'm going to be in the Jeremiah reading today in several other places. The part that I want to read to you is probably the most famous part, and that's in chapter 17, verse 9. Most devious is the heart, it is perverse. Who can fathom it? The heart is deceitful and wicked and so forth. There are various translations. And I want to talk about that. Go back to Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. All right, so that's before the flood. So now we fast forward to Genesis 8, which is after the flood. Verse 21, this is when Noah offers a sacrifice. Then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So notice, before the flood, God's appraisal of the human heart was that it was totally evil. After the flood... His appraisal of the human heart is that it's totally evil. Right? Sure. He destroyed them the first time for being totally evil. They come out of the flood and he says, wow, that's totally evil. But he vows not to destroy them anymore. What I'm going to suggest to you is God at that point began a program of the redemption of the human heart. And that program of redemption of the heart continues to this day. I'm going to talk about this in the context of lots of things. I was reading uh, Lord Sachs a couple of weeks ago, which sort of got me onto this theme. You all know that one of the things that believers get rattled about by non-believers is, what shall I do with my slaves? As in, what kind of a God is this that allows people to have slaves? And what Sachs was saying is that the seeds of abolition are sown in the Torah. And what we have today is no Christian nation has slaves anymore. In fact, abolition was sown in the Constitution. Because remember when the Constitution was written, there was this kerfuffle between the northern states and the southern states. And the northern states were more populous than the southern states, and so the southern states wanted to count their slaves. And the northern says, wait, 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 wait. You can't count your slaves because they can't vote. Then you treat them like property. And so they came up with a compromise, the three-fifths compromise. So one slave, for census purposes, counted as three-fifths of a person. And, of course, today, all the liberals are just incensed by that. The Constitution is flawed from its beginning because of that. But in that compromise were the seeds of abolition. And... Within a hundred years after that compromise, we fought a civil war and slaves were freed. So, just as the Torah contains within itself the seeds of ending slavery, so our Constitution contained within itself the seeds of abolition. And the problem is, history or time is not something that philosophy considers. If you just look at the straight words of the Torah, or just look at the straight words of the compromise that was made in the Constitution, 
it looks like, wow, this is a flawed document. It accepts slavery. And what they don't see is that acceptance, in fact, contains within itself the seeds of the abolition of it. They don't get that. Now, what I will suggest to you is from the garden on, there are three groups of people. Those who can count and those who can't. Somebody got it. Three groups of people. The first group of people are the folks that you were praying about this morning. Those who don't know the Lord. And there's a lot of them. The second group of people are what I'll call churchmen. And churchmen are those who know the scriptures and subtly distort them. Let me give you an example. The first example, the very first one, occurs in the garden. And you have three players there, don't you? You have the woman, who I will suggest is in the role of what I'm calling the great majority. You have the man, and you have the snake. The snake is the churchman. And the snake quotes to the woman, who's the target, Scripture slightly distorted. In fact, in Timothy it says, the man was not deceived. So you have the man, who's the remnant, who goes in after the woman to rescue her. And that rescue, by the way, is going to take centuries. And you have the serpent, who's the churchman, who subtly distorts scripture. And then you have the target of this deception, which in this case is the woman. So we have today churchmen who subtly distort scripture. The law is done away with. You don't want to mess with that old Torah. You don't want to mess with that old law. It'll condemn you, right? That's a subtle error. And by the way, if you read Scripture the way they tell you to read Scripture, wow, it looks like the law's been done away with. Shazam! But of course it's not. Let's go back to another example. And this is in John chapter 8, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Yeshua is having one of his running gun battles with the Pharisees. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 8, verse 31. So Yeshua said to the Jews who had believed in him. Notice, Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, most of today's believers just quote the part, the truth will set you free. They don't quote the part that says, if you abide in my word. In other words, if you abide with me, then you will know the truth. They just sort of skip that abide part. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Yeshua answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. By the way, that's Yovel, isn't it? Jubilee? Because... The servant does not remain in the house after Jubilee, does he? That's the whole deal of Jubilee. Every seven years, debts are canceled, and people are given an opportunity to go free. But on the 50th year Jubilee, they're kicked out of the house. They have to go free, and they have to go back to their... So Yeshua is quoting from Jubilee. But notice here, you've got three groups. You've got Yeshua. You've got the churchmen who are the ones who are arguing with him and say, oh, we're free. We're sons of Abraham. We're not slaves. And then you've got the great group of people 
who are trying to figure things out. And the conflict then is over this group of people between what I'll call the remnant and the churchmen, who in this case are the Pharisees in the garden or the snake, today are churches who subtly distort scripture. Now, this conflict has been going on, as I say, since the garden. And the conflict is over the human heart. Remember, we have our Jeremiah passage. The heart is desperately wicked or desperately sick or you know various translations. But the deal here is the human heart wants what it wants. And what the world does and churchmen do is they enlist logic in the service of giving the heart what it wants. The classic description of that conflict is Athens versus Jerusalem. Logic is is a really nice tool. As I've said before, I use it myself sometimes. But it isn't the highest tool. Because logic can serve the evil desires of the heart. And just go back to our example of churchmen. Churchmen today say, you don't want to mess with that old Torah. The heart really enjoys that message because it says you can do whatever you want. That's what the heart hears. And logic then will go through scripture and it will take you to places like Hebrews. And you know, you can all quote all those scriptures that seem to say that the law has been done away with. It hasn't been. It's a gift of a loving God for people he loves for their benefit. That's why God gave them the Torah. So this subtle distortion using logic in the service of the desires of the heart, just like the serpent says, has God said, surely you will not die. And the woman says, well, I really want that fruit. It's pleasant to the eye. It's desirable to make one wise. It tastes good. I really want it. My heart really wants that fruit. And here I've got somebody who has given me a logical reason why I can have it. Just like I really, really want pork chops or shrimp or whatever it is. I really, really want that. And here I've got a churchman that gives me logical reasons why I can have it. So my mind is reasonably logical. And if somebody gives me a good logical argument why I can do what my heart wants to do, I will follow that logic and my heart. We all do this. And what God is saying is, if you are deceived, you will follow your heart to destruction. And so what God does is gives you the truth. And you have a certain number of people, which again I'm going to call the remnant, who understand the truth and contend for the truth. And then you've got this group of churchmen They also understand the truth. But what they do is they distort that truth in order to gain influence over the majority. Because if you can draw a crowd, a crowd is a source of power. Masses of people are sources of power. And if you get them to do what you want to do, you can do all sorts of things. Now, as we go through this battle, it looks to us right now, as we look in these United States, like we're losing We're not losing, we're winning. Now let me explain why. 
going back to our example of slavery. It looked like the slave owners were winning. And it looks like all throughout history the slave owners are winning. And all of a sudden, one day we pop up and, wait a minute, slavery's gone. Where'd it go? But it looked like we were losing all this time. But we weren't. We were winning. And I'll use two examples. I've used one of them before. A guy named Milo Yiannopoulos. Some of you know who he is and are laughing. Milo Yiannopoulos is queer as a goose. He is a flaming sodomite and proud of it. He's also a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's a conservative. And what Milo does is he goes to college campuses and he says wildly politically incorrect things and just drives people nuts. He causes riots every time he goes because he says stuff that's true. And oh, by the way, he doesn't push sodomy. He just says, that's what I am and I, that's what my heart wants. And he instead talks about liberty and all those kinds of things that college campuses are now against. And it drives them absolutely bonkers. As I say, I don't agree with the flaming sodomite part, but he's really a fun guy. The other one is Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not my first choice for president. And I will quite frankly say that. But one of the things that Donald Trump is doing is he's having fun. Watch him. He's having fun. And he's having fun poking the left and going against the politically correct wisdom. He will say things that would have destroyed any other candidate. And he enjoys doing it. In the political realm, he's the Milo of presidential politics. Now, the thing about both of these two guys is they are fighting a war on ground that the left thought it had won. That's what political correctness is, by the way. We won that battle. You don't get to talk about that anymore. We won the battle on gay marriage. You don't get to talk about that anymore. We won the battle on abortion. You don't get to talk about that anymore. And what both of these guys are doing are going back in and they are refighting those battles on ground that the left thinks it has won. And you know why they're being successful? Because they're having fun. They are really enjoying themselves. What does God say over and over and over again in his book? Two things. Rejoice and fear not. He says both of those things over and over again. And he's talking to the remnant. Because he's talking to those who are engaged in a conflict with what I'm calling the churchmen over the vast majority of people who don't really know God or are confused. And he's saying your weapons are no fear and joy. And I will suggest joy is the more powerful of the two, quite frankly, because joy is infectious. Joy is attractive. Who are the grimmest people that you have ever seen in the world? Feminists. They are. They are just grim. And they have no sense of humor. And furthermore, if you go in and poke fun at them, they will just explode. I'll give you an example. I've used this before, but it's really good. Chimpanzees. The natural enemy of a chimpanzee is a leopard. Leopards feed on chimpanzees. If you've ever watched a nature film and you see a pack of chimpanzees and a leopard is 
stalking around the group. What do they do? They jump up and down and they scream and they throw sticks and they will even defecate and throw poop at the leper. Does that sound like our college campuses today? (laughs) You know, I'm dead serious. And I'm suggesting to you very strongly that the reasons the chimpanzees do that is because they're terrified. Because they know that the leopard is going to get one of them. And so this is a reaction of terror. And what I'm suggesting to you is all this stuff that you are seeing on the campuses and on the politics is an expression of terror. The last thing that these people want is a Milo or a Trump or anybody else coming in and speaking the truth. Especially speaking the truth in a joyful manner. It scares the daylights out of them. And so they react by jumping up and down, screaming and flinging poop. That's what's going on. And the more poop they fling, the more terrified they are. And what they're trying to do is intimidate you and get you to shut up and do not speak truth in my presence and do not speak truth in the presence of people I have influence over. That's what's going on. And that's why I say we are winning. And you can tell the magnitude of our victory by the strength of their reaction. And the media and the internet and all that kind of stuff are focusing on the tantrums. And you get the impression that they're winning. They're not. They're not winning. Because if they were winning, they wouldn't be so terrified when somebody comes in and speaks the truth. Understand, we are winning. And it's the fact that they have the media in their pocket and the media amplifies their side of the conversation that gives you the impression that they're being successful. They are not. Just like as we had our revolution, we had the impression that slavery was forever in the South. It was not. And less than a century later, it's gone. Same thing in biblical times. God writes into his Torah. This is how you treat slaves. And in that prescription for treatment of slaves is the abolition of slavery. Because once you start treating your slaves as human beings, you start to question in your heart, is it right for me to have them? And it takes time. It takes a long time. It is not something that happens in 20 minutes. In some cases, it's something that happens over generations. But it wins every time. Now, one of the fallacies that churchmen tell their congregations is, we win, but you're only going to see it from heaven. That's nonsense. That's not true. We win and we will see it here. Now, there are no permanent victories and there are no permanent defeats in this world. Just like I said with Milo and Trump, who are now going back and fighting on the turf that the left thought it had won. And they're doing it with humor, which is what's driving them nuts. The lets thought they had won all that. We got feminism, we got abortion, we got, we got, we got, we got it all. Can't talk about that anymore. Now we're going to move on to our next thing, which is nobody knows what sexy is. Because we've won all that stuff and you can't talk about it anymore. And what Milo and Trump are showing is, no, sorry, that victory is not secure. Because I'm going to come in and I'm going to poke you in the ribs and I'm going to laugh at you. 
And now you've got to fight that battle all over again. There are no permanent victories. There are no permanent defeats. So when you get defeated, and sometimes you will, you will not win every battle. Understand that that defeat is not permanent. Similarly, when you win, understand that that victory is not permanent. You must defend it. You must be ready to continue to fight that battle again, even though you think, gee, I won that one. Why am I fighting this one again? I just won that. No. Just like Satan, the churchman will not go away. And you have to continue to fight the battle. And you need to understand that. And as I say, one of the things that the left tries to do is try to say, oh yeah, we won that one. Settled science. Science is settled on that. We don't talk about that anymore. Next subject. Well, no. The science is not settled. We're going to continue to talk about this. And we're going to continue to fight that battle until we win. And this is not we win someday in the sweet by and by. This is we win now. And that's what I'm telling you. We are winning, and you can tell that by the magnitude of their temper tantrums every time they're confronted with the truth. If they were not afraid of the leopard, they would not jump up and down and scream and throw poop at you. That is a fear reaction. Now, for those of you who are dealing with relatives who are lost, or who are not saved, or are not in the kingdom, or are deceived, or whatever you want to call it, I will suggest to you that lecturing them does not work. What works is joy. What works is peace. What works is showing them the goodness of God. And you show them the goodness of God through your own life. One of the things that I do, and you you all know this, whenever somebody asks me how I am, I said, greatly blessed and beloved of God. And I say that to grocery clerks, and I was in a liquor store a couple weeks ago. My routine is I take my 93-year-old aunt out for a ride every Sunday. Gets her out of the place she is, and usually we just run errands. But it gets her out. And one of the errands we run is she likes a glass of wine, and I like a glass of wine. So periodically when we're out of wine, we'll pull by this liquor store. Same one every time, and they get to know me. And every time they ask me how I am, I say, greatly blessed and beloved of God. Every time. And I'm starting to get one of these guys. He says, yeah, I'm not that good. And I says, you can be. Yeah, I know. I'm not lecturing him. I'm not handing out tracts. I'm not beating him up over the head. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I am simply being my normal, joyful self and expressing that the reason for the joy that I feel is because I know the Lord. And the churchman will scream at you and throw poop, but you're not contending for Satan. You're not contending for the Pharisees. You're not contending for the churchmen. Those people know the truth and they have decided that they're going to follow the evilness of their heart despite knowing the truth. That's what Yeshua is talking to the Pharisees about. You guys have got the word. You know the truth. You're the leaders. Yet you are following the evil desires of your own hearts. And you are leading other people to do the same. Those people are not your target. Your target are the ones who are either ignorant or have been deceived by the churchmen. And those people you will not argue out of it because they have been deceived. What you will do is you will win them through your joy and through your peace. That's your weapon. And you will not see results in 20 minutes. This is a long campaign. 
God's been at it for 5,000 years as he's working to change the human heart. Because remember, we said in Genesis, before the flood, he destroyed everybody because the heart was wicked. After the flood, the heart's still wicked. And he said, I'm not going to destroy him anymore. What I'm going to do, parenthesis, the genealogy, not God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change that heart. I'm going to turn that heart into something else. Something that I am pleased with. And you're part of that process. You are part of the process of reaching out to those who do not understand or lost or deceived. And your job is to help God in the transformation of their hearts. And you can do that. That's why you're here. That's your job. That's your mission statement. Your job is not to hunker down and persevere and hope that the Lord comes before you finally get beaten. That's lousy theology. That is not your job. Your job is to win. Your job is to prevail. Your job is to storm the gates of hell and release the prisoners. And yeah, sometimes you're not going to do it. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to win. But when you do lose, recognize, I'm going to get back up and we're going to go after it again. And when you win, recognize that that victory is not permanent because your enemy is going to counterattack. But you can do it. And you can do it with joy in your heart. And that's the only way you're going to prevail. God says so. Fear not and be joyful. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.